Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, America's attention was focused on Baltimore, Maryland, where anger over Freddie Gray, who died in police custody in mysterious circumstances, boiled over into civil unrest. We'll talk about what went on in Baltimore this week and what's been going on in Baltimore over the past few decades. Meanwhile, oral arguments in the consolidated gay marriage case currently before the Supreme Court took place this week. Is the Supreme Court poised to render a judgment that fits its nation's current mood on marriage equality? Or will it be a dream deferred once more? We will look for the signs and the portents. Finally, with Hillary Clinton officially in the race, new attention is being focused on the Clinton Foundation and its donors. We'll discuss how the foundation figures in this new wild, wild west of campaign finance. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Paul Blumenthal, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Ryan Riley, and Amanda Turkle. That is a lot of names, but here's what happened first. Hey, everyone, this is Jason. Before we get into the following segment in which me, Zach Carter, and Arthur Delaney talk about what happened in Baltimore this week, uh, we have a quick update. Less than 24 hours after we recorded and wondered at length about when the interest in the central mystery of this case, the death of Freddie Gray, would heat up. Marilyn Mosby happened. Mosby, the state's attorney who will be investigating and prosecuting this case, held a press conference on Friday morning. During that press conference, she laid out the bones of her investigation. And the short version is this. Gray's death has been ruled a homicide. Warrants are out for the arrest of six members of the Baltimore Police Department. And those police officers will be charged with crimes ranging from depraved heart murder to assault to false imprisonment. Uh, that is the context for what's going forward. The stuff we didn't know before we recorded this segment. We just wanted to put that out there so you weren't confused. Thanks for listening. All right. I'm joined now by you know our pals, Arthur Delaney and Zach Carter. We're going to talk about uh, what happened in Baltimore this week. Uh, Arthur, you were there in Baltimore past two days. That's right. So tell us what's going on, man. Tell us. Uh, so how did, how did Freddie Gray die? Well, that's a mystery. I know. As of this recording. Right. Uh, he died in police custody. Did police kill him? It seems like that's, there's a possibility that that's what happened. But we don't know. And so, but we know he died while, while you know, after police had arrested him and stuffed right. him in a van. So people were pissed. This happened, uh, you know, mid-April. And there had been protests, a little bit of property destruction, and then... The day of Freddie Gray's funeral on Monday, I went up there to Baltimore to the funeral with our intern, Julia Craven, and we interviewed people at the funeral. We listened to the eulogy and the other speakers, and then we were like, all right, and we, we went to the the nearest place that we thought would have Wi-Fi, which was a Dunkin' Donuts in part of this big mall called Mondawmin Mall. Right. This is the mall that they closed early 
uh, and played a, the closure of this mall played a key. Oh, I'm coming to that. Okay, okay. Don't give away the All right, stuff, sorry. Jason. So we, God, spoiler alert. We get, we, spoiler alert, there was a riot. This is where if I was on TV, I'd be like, <laughs> I'd be like and we'll be right back. <laughs> All right, so we'll be right back. Yeah, okay, so go on. So we uh, we got some food at Dunkin' Donuts, and the cashier was like, so y'all be careful, there's going to be a riot here at 3. It was like 2.30 or 1.00. Uh, uh, it was like 2 o'clock or 1.30. And we're like, okay. But this was the word. This was the buzz. It was all on social media, and everyone in these shops at Von Dahmen Mall had heard about it. And police also were warning them that they thought something might happen. Yeah, they showed up ahead of time. The, the police thought it was going to be something with, like, Bloods and Crips. <laughs> and I'm not sure that's what it was. It was definitely on, like, Instagram, though. And it was definitely a purge type thing. Right. We've heard about these few, like, their police forces in uh, a few American cities, I think Cleveland is one of them, have been forced into a panic by people pretending on social media that they're going to reenact the movie The Purge. Yeah, so we're typing up our story about the funeral, and then Dunkin' Donuts is like... Finally, someone wants to reenact a, an Ethan Hawke movie in real life. The, du- <laughs> the Dunkin' Donuts is like, you know what? We're closing, and you have to get out. We're shutting down the whole mall. We're like, what? Right. And so we went outside, and uh, uh, we went over to the Burger King, and a manager there was like, yeah, I shut down before this mall even shut down. All my customers said that there was going to be a purge-type thing, a riot-type thing with kids from the nearby Frederick Douglass High School. He said kids' parents were telling him other customers and stuff. So they shut down before the entire mall itself, which has dozens of stores, right. also shut down. I called them all, and they're like, yeah, we're doing this as a safety precaution. So then... Kids get out of school. As, as 3 o'clock approaches, sure enough, some kids started gathering at the mall. They would be gathering there anyway, probably... All these bus stops are there in a metro station. And it's a mall. Right, sure. That's what teenagers do. They hang out at the mall. <laughs> Apparently they still do that. Yeah. <laughs> at least they, they did that in the 90s. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, well this, they still ha- this, this mall is like the only lively thing that's near there, really. I mean, it's, it's, it's a hub. So uh, cops were there. And uh, the teenagers started gathering in a large group. Across from where, across this little road off a parking lot from where the police were, and it was clearly tense. And uh, the the cops started fastening their riot gear. And there's this weird moment where a cop's like helmet fell on the ground, and we noticed a girl picking up rocks. Yeah. And the kids were saying stuff like, "Y'all started this. Yeah. You, you killed Freddie Gray." Uh, and then the cops started telling the kids to to move and the kids were shouting at the cops and the cops sort of advanced in a group on the kids and they they chased them the kids just sort of ran away across Reisterstown Road uh through the parking lot of the mall and then across this road and the cops kind of went after them and then at that point like the rocks started flying and it was on. And it was for 90 minutes. Rocks, bricks, bottles, everything was getting chucked at cops. You could hear it loudly thudding off their riot right, shields. Yeah. And uh, you know, we, we saw a, a, guy, a, a journalist get beat up, which was a theme of the thing. Like, journalists who had cameras were getting beat up all night. Um, this went on for 90 minutes. And it was really the beginning of the eventual riots more downtown that featured arson, 
and yeah. looting and the trashing of police cars and just general mayhem. So the, the the police did a good job of like shutting things down at the mall, and they had a barricade across the streets of you know just officers while uh, kids were still sort of taking pot shots, throwing rocks at them. But then we saw plumes of smoke rising up from downtown. We tried to get down there, and it was just nuts. This was after about 5 o'clock right. when we got to the uh, more downtown area around West North Avenue and Pennsylvania Avenue. That was the scene of the CVS burning. It's crazy. Yeah. <clears throat> the um, did you, What did you learn down there that maybe a lot of people haven't picked up on yet? Well, it's so it started with kids at the mall for sure. That was kids, or at least people who were young, if even if they weren't juveniles, right? Mm-hmm. But then downtown, I don't know because people were saying same group of people. People were saying that if they had let kids get on their buses as normal, there may not have been a huge crowd down. Yeah, this, this Mother Jones story came out that said if you know teachers and other people who were around there said that if they had just let the kids go. None of this would happen, and I just don't think that story is true at all. You know, you know, none of this would have happened if they hadn't killed Freddie Gray. I mean, yeah. I feel like all of this attention on who who threw the first rock, who threw the first punch, and all of this shit. Like, um, you know, these kids are angry, and and you know, I'm I'm not advocating rioting, but they they have a they have a damn good reason to be angry, and 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 you can't you can't blame them for being angry. You just can't. Uh, and, and, you know, Arthur, you and, you know, you and Julie were going down to cover the funeral. Um, and, and there was some coverage of, of Freddie Gray bef- before, before Baltimore oh, started was, to burn. Yeah, it was becoming a thing uh, all the previous week. It really, it really blew up because of the rioting. And, and I think, I think it's just, it, you know, uh, I, I, I think people are paying a lot much more closely. They're paying much more close attention to this because of the riot than they were beforehand. Um, I, I just don't. I don't think that this was going to be a major national story. I think it was going to be because people are getting sort of, you know, unarmed black guy gets killed by police sort of exhaustion. We have one of these stories every two or three weeks. It happens every day, probably. It, it's constantly happening. Uh, it's just when they catch it on video, you know, it, it becomes a national story. And and I don't think Freddie Gray was going to blow up like this until until Baltimore well, actually started to burn. The problem now is points. that Freddie Gray isn't blowing up. That no one's talking about him anymore. I don't. Oh, I don't think you that's have, true. No, no, you have I, you have like cable news heroes going down. They're getting interviews with Baltimore mayor, with yeah. Maryland governor, with cops. And no one's asking the question that needs to be asked, which is, how did Freddie Gray die? Well, here's what a- are you going to do to figure out how Freddie Gray died? That's the only question I would ask the mayor of Baltimore. I would sit in a fucking room and ask her that question over and over again until she's weeping. Key points about how this started. We interviewed these kids. Uh, they were pissed about Freddie Gray. This wasn't a nihilistic opportunity for just pointless mayhem. Right. They were very specifically angry about Freddie Gray. What's happened to Western Baltimore also, is a nihilistic opportunity. They weren't, and they weren't, they weren't pissed off just because the cops were there either. You know, the, 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 the counter-narrative that has developed is that cops pen, penned them in and they had no, nothing else to do. Cops essentially instigated what happened. No. It, this was on social media. This purge business, kids had seen it. The ones we interviewed were like, I didn't think they would go through with it. I'm not doing it myself, but... We were well aware that this was uh, in a planned thing. It wasn't planned by an individual or a specific group, but it was just circulating, and you can see the flyers. Yeah, no, and, and all those businesses closed before <laughs> before the city. They shut fire, down. You know, they way, shut way down. Before. They were terrified of it. But at that point, it wasn't a riot. I would call it a, a violent protest for those reasons, mm-hmm. because yeah. these kids had political awareness. They were pissed off 
about what uh, about a specific thing the police had done, and they weren't rioting, they weren't looting. Maybe maybe they would have if police hadn't been there, but they were throwing rocks at cops and they, and they had a message. But then, when you get downtown, everything's crazy. and stuff is stuff is being looted and set on fire. That was a riot. And I and at that moment it got kind of scary. And Julia and I were trying to like just get out of there, and we couldn't uh, because no cab could get through. We called an Uber X, and the guy was like, "I can't." You did what? Yeah. And the guy was like, "I can't believe there's an Uber X available right now." Oh and he's like, "Your Uber is arriving now." But then the guy called me, and he was like, "I can't do it, man. I can't get through these cops." And did I'm you not give waiting. Like a five star rating, anyway. That's cool. I did get charged, but I thought, oh, whatever. He, he was really scared. Yeah. The stuff was. Uh, it was really crazy. Uh, then we wound up finding a friend of mine who had a car, and we and he drove us around, uh, and we watched. We saw the looting. Uh, I mean, people were still talking about Freddie Gray at that point, but people were also like taking liquor out of liquor stores and drinking it. Yeah, I was like, it, it was about to get dark, and at this point, like, this is clearly very dangerous. So it's just yeah, mayhem. Yeah, yeah. It, it lost was, lost all shot of whatever. The, the CVS was burning massively. Right. And there was a line of cops next to it. Yeah. And people were still chucking rocks at the cops while the CVS was on fire. I'm going to go I'm going to go to Baltimore to attend the funeral for that CVS next week. So that'll be fun. Um, the, <laughs> you know, we so Steve hosted by Walgreens. So but but you know the anger this community feels it it it, it has a sort of flashpoint in Freddie Gray, but uh I think the origins are perhaps much longer and deeper than that. One of the things that I kept thinking about watching cable news coverage, and it was like centered on the CVS was burning and people talking about, oh, now people in the community have lost those jobs. I was like, I was like, oh, so now you're finally interested in the, those nine jobs were the fucking tipping point to getting interested in unemployment in Baltimore. Yeah, it's funny because crazy half the buildings and you can see it. You know, half the buildings are already abandoned and boarded up. Yeah, and half destroyed. Baltimore yeah. sold it itself. Cause... Baltimore sold itself in the past few years as as a, as a city that's like turning and uh, turning a new. Leaf and, and opening a new not chapter. This part of Baltimore. And no, not this part of Baltimore. This part of Baltimore is the part of Baltimore where capital has literally been extracted to fund all the good stuff that's happening in other neighborhoods. But here's the thing about the people who I, you know, who I mean, we happen to talk to. This is actual, over the course of two days. They're like, you're 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 here because of the rioting, but you know, what about the attention right. to the other things? You know what I think. I, the attention to the other things is good. The poverty, the joblessness, the lack of investment of quality educational opportunities. But I consistently heard from people I talked to that they were pissed at the police. They were angry about Freddie Gray because that represented something that many people, in fact, probably everybody there had experienced directly themselves or for a family member or friend, which was getting beat up by cops. Right. They don't have any contact with any other institution in these parts of Baltimore than the cops. But they say the cops the cops beat me up right. four times. The cops beat up my friend. The cops drag, beat up my son. Stoop. Yeah, yeah. So it's a very specific gripe about the police. And this bears out, I mean... But these things are related. I mean, I think, sure, I, sure. Th- I think these things are related. Like, when... If, if you look at, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just taking like a structural view here. Like the population of Baltimore since the 1970s has declined from nearly a million 
to a little over 600,000. So it's lost about a third of its population over the last 35 years. And it's, it's lost that because – I'm, I'm not going to pretend that Baltimore was some, like, wonderful place of racial harmony before the 1970s. You know, we, we all know that's not true. But the reason the population has declined is because they've hollowed out they've, – they've systematically hollowed out the manufacturing base in Baltimore. Right. Those jobs are not there anymore. And they're not there because Fall Volcker – uh, basically destroyed them with high interest rates as chairman of the Federal Reserve in the 1980s. And then uh, be- because American trade policy since NAFTA and the WTO has systematically undercut these right. things. Um, it's not because automation. It's not because robots took everybody's jobs. You know, when robots take your jobs, the steel mill does really well. It makes a lot of money and it stays in town because the robots took the job and now they're doing the work. Um, it's it's because of trade policy. I mean, they're still sh- – they just shut down you know, one, of the, one of the last steel mills in Baltimore that was founded in the 70s uh, just a couple years ago. I mean, they're still closing these things. And when those jobs go away, you know, everything that comes with, with a good-paying middle-class manufacturing job goes away with it. You know, those people can't go spend money uh, at, you know, at the, the, the Starbucks or, or, or whatever the fuck. Um, and they've, they've just systematically hollowed that out. And then the band-aid they put on it is, okay, all right, well, now we've got all of this awful – you know, we've got these awful economic conditions, and it turns out people resort to all sorts of various violent forms of crime when they don't have other opportunities. And the response has been, well, let's just have really, really tough police. And this let's, was let's a, have cops really, really go after, after the crime. And, a, amazingly intersecting with national politics because one of the only people who might challenge Hillary Clinton is former Baltimore Mayor Martin O'Malley. Right. And, and David Simon, creator of The Wire— like drew blood everyone turns to him like what do you think david simon and he's like i think martin o'malley sucks and he's directly responsible for what's happening because very much like in uh a a storyline of the wire yeah as as councilman and mayor and then uh he, he he basically wanted a crime reduction that was not really all that feasible with current methods, and he got it by well getting, juking stats and like rousting people in big drag. So ju- ju- yeah, juking yeah. stats was one thing, which you know O'Malley denied. But the other thing was extremely aggressive policing of extremely minor offenses. Yeah, and that happened, and that that was such a problem. That, you know, ACL ACLU sued in 2006, class action on behalf of people alleging pattern of uh, uh, false arrest. But and you know, the city had to settle with them. And, and you can and, read, you, just to be, just to guide listeners, you can read David Simon's take on Martin O'Malley at the Marshall Project's website. The headline is David Simon on Baltimore's Anguish. Um, Bill Keller actually uh, did the interview. But, and, and but this, the this gets to the heart of a lot of, of economic policymaking in the United States because— This is a huge R greater than G argument. I mean, I mean look— Conversation to be had here, I, to, I think. To some extent, you got to ask, like, what, what is the mayor of Baltimore going to do about, about the chairman of the Federal Reserve and about, about federal trade policy? You know, Nothing. There's just not you that much he can do about it. Yeah. Um, so, so there's there's a federal problem there, but but you know you see that the you know, there, there's a, a broader debate in American politics that's been going on since the 1990s about whether this whether violence and poverty and and poverty related violence is the result of people just not trying hard enough to be good people or the result of structural problems in society. And if you think it's it's just people being bad, then policing these people and rounding up all the bad people ought to, ought to fix things. But it hasn't. But it hasn't. And and you're, you're actually, you know, one of the weird things, uh, Peter Baker from The New York Times uh, wrote an article this week saying that, you know, oddly, across the political spectrum in the 2016 campaign, Every candidate, every major candidate, thinks that the criminal justice system is over-policing and, and, that, and that life is over-criminalized. And they want to do something about the mass incarceration that, that, that's gone on. But very few people are talking about 
what the what what the over incarceration, what the what what the overly aggressive policing was a response to. There was an economic problem behind all of this. Right. And that economic problem, you know, I, I think that the most cataclysmic economic event of, of my lifetime was was the Wall Street crash. And I remember the, the day after after the bailout failed, you, you just started seeing that people were just so angry. And it wasn't just Democrats. It wasn't just Republicans. Everybody was really angry that a bunch of people had wrecked the economy and they were going to get a whole lot of money um, as, as a result of that. Yeah. And, and if you grow up every single day of your life and every single day of your life is like the day after the bailout, I mean, what the fuck do you expect people to do? What I do remember being in New York not soon, not long after that period of time and the fury of just ordinary people that I normally talk to who I didn't think actually had, you know, a whole lot of personal connection, high finance or stock market or, or any part of that economy. The fury was so intense. Uh, it, it, it was like nothing like it. I think that I think that you, I look at other cities and I see these kind of same problems developing in San Francisco. Middle class San Franciscans are losing their thread in New York City. Uh, investors are telling affluent people that what they need to do is buy up and leave vacant luxury apartment buildings in Detroit. Uh, uh, um, uh, Peter Moskowitz wrote for Gawker a whole thing about how uh, the dude who runs Quicken Loans, the predatory lending <laughs> super guru and another billionaire, they're essentially establishing like their own feudal barony in Detroit. That's what Detroit's going to be. Uh, his story talks about you know a guy who's been pushed from the apartment that he loved living in, could walk everywhere, uh, got pushed out of that neighborhood, pushed into a shittier neighborhood because right now all the capital that's coming into Detroit, none of it is going to actually fix Detroit. It's going to provide space and playgrounds for these two wealthy billionaires and their pals. Well, look, and this happened. This happened in Baltimore, right? Yeah. During a, a lot of the subprime mortgage crisis is 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 in white neighborhoods where where people are, are getting into houses that they you know they, they ultimately can't afford because there's a bubble on. Um, but a lot of the a lot of the subprime crisis is is something called reverse redlining. For years, banks just wouldn't go into black neighborhoods and and provide financial services. And then during the subprime crisis, they're like, "Hey, we haven't been uh, pushing mortgages on any of these people. Let's do that." And so Wells Fargo uh, settled a massive suit about Baltimore, where they had they had systematically gone into black neighborhoods, pushed subprime loans onto these people, and then just stripped all the equity out. And I mean, they're just mass foreclosures in Baltimore that were caused. Uh, you know, the, 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 the promise of of these new institutions coming in and you know and, and providing financial services and this somehow being a, a, a gateway to the middle class was just a total lie. You know, financial um, financial predators have actually in the past used Baltimore as kind of a petri dish for their weird fucking experiments. Ben protests and Legged Siebert back in uh, 2010 mm-hmm. reported reported a story for us about how a woman living in Baltimore, I think it was West Baltimore, uh, was evicted from her home. She was evicted not because she was late on her mortgage. She, in fact, had paid off her mortgage. But she had fallen into arrears paying her water bill. Right. And the city sold that debt as, as, a, as a tax lien. And then someone just swooped in and took her house away from her. She was evicted said, for $300 this, this on a water bill. Yeah. And it's like I, I think people are like, well, how is it that she paid off her mortgage, but then she couldn't afford a water bill? And I'm like, oh, were you alive in 2008? Did you see what happened? All that fucking <laughs> money went to money heaven. All those fucking jobs went to employment heaven. Like it's not that hard to figure out how this happened. 
Also, I mean, paying off a house, a lot. One of the big problems with the subprime crisis is that it didn't it didn't actually expand home ownership very much. No. It was it was people who already owned their homes being being talked into refinancing at a, at a terrible rate. And this happened in Baltimore. And it was it was really devastating. This also happened in Chicago, um, another another city where there was a lot a lot of really aggressive lending of intentionally shitty financial products uh, being pushed on, on on black communities. But, you know, that's that's the experience for the last 30 years. You have it. You have it relatively small bore on on Wells Fargo's lending practices in Baltimore in, in the 2000s. But then you have it on trade policy and at the Federal Reserve at, at the highest, you know, the highest levels of, of the American government. For, for people who don't live in urban areas, you know, they don't have to deal with the, the hollowing out of the manufacturing sector every single day. Right. But, but even, if, even if these are not people who would, you know, most of the people who are angry right now were never going to be eligible for a manufacturing job because the jobs are all gone. So they don't, think, they don't wake up every day and say, boy, I really wish I could get a, a good paying job at a steel mill. But that's that's what happened. That that's what happened to Baltimore, and 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 there's you, you combine that with racism and with with violent policing, and it, you know, it's it's basically this is the social product of 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 sort of uh, finance first, everybody else, you know, women and children last economics, and it, and and we're living with it. It's so bad in Baltimore that uh, Rand Paul, Joe Scarborough, and Mark, Mike Barnacle all noticed it from the Acela window, right? Going through. <laughs> I'm taking it. I'm taking the train next week, and so I'm really excited to actually get my uh, Morning Joe uh, sort of like uh, associate's degree in poverty journalism. Well, it's true. You can see all those boarded up buildings. Yeah. How did it come to pass that, like, the neighborhoods didn't have enough clout to keep the train tracks out of the neighborhood? Too much welfare. Yeah, exactly. Too much <laughs> welfare. Yeah, too 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 dependent. But, I mean, yeah. but, but that, that is just a, a statement of the problem, right? Right. I mean, the, of course, Joe Scarborough never goes to Baltimore, to the poor parts of oh, Baltimore. You know, it was of course hilarious. <laughs> Mr. Fight the Washington Machine was like was uh, w- Rand Paul said, I'm glad we didn't stop in Baltimore. And I was like, OK, a not a good look for you to be like being like, oh, thank God I made it back to the Capitol. Thank God I made it back to my Beltway Redoubt where I can forget about all these problems. I'm back in my little bubble, thank God. But the other thing is like, of course the fucking train stopped in Baltimore. All the fucking trains stop in Baltimore. What train were you on? Yeah, I was about to say that. <laughs> is, is there a special Acela that skips Baltimore? Yeah, Rand Paul's like, don't, you don't stop. You keep going through. I don't know why I'm talking like Rand Paul. He's like rich plantation owner. Yeah, but fuck him. I'm not good at imitations. <laughs> you should imitate a senator. Uh, yeah, but, uh, right. I guess they'll call it the Acela elite. It just goes. It's just only from from Midtown Manhattan exactly. to Capitol Hill. That's it stops the only at, two it stops. goes from Midtown Manhattan to Penn University to Washington D.C. <laughs> fuck everyone else. All right. Well, yeah. Thanks for joining us to talk about this terrible, terrible story, which somehow we've managed to light a uh, light on a very cynical, humorous note, like we do. All right, thanks, guys, for for uh, talking about this uh, sad, sad story. Uh, you can follow Zach Carter on Twitter at, Z-A- at Zach D. Carter. Zach is Z-A-C-H. D is in D. Carter as in, uh, you know, Carter. Uncle Jimmy Carter. Uncle Jimmy Carter. Arthur Delaney. You can follow him at Arthur Delaney HP. Please follow me. I am dying for more Twitter followers. Arthur Arthur's entire self, sense of self-worth is bounded up in his Twitter followers. I need that number to go up, please. Yeah, please follow Arthur. Hey there, listener of this podcast. I've got a quick little thing I'd love to chat with you about. Are you a regular So That Happened listener? Well, let us know. Send me an electronic communication with your electronic communicating devices at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. 
Tell us what you think of the show, what we're messing up, and who you'd like to hear more from or more about. Okay, back to the program. Okay, so we're back now with uh, Huffington Post's Amanda Turkle and Ryan Riley. Welcome, you guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And you guys, uh, you guys are here uh, because uh, the um, the Supreme Court is having uh, hosting now oral arguments about the, in this landmark same sex marriage case. Uh, and I hesitate to actually name the case because I don't know how to pronounce the first name in it. That's a good move. Uh, so Obergefell. Oh, uh, oh, is that what it is? I'm pretty it. sure it's Obergefell. Obergefell versus Hodges. Very good. <laughs> well, see, I, I would, I would, I've been able to handle Hodges. Right. The first one, I was just like uh, Oberga. I don't know. That sounds like <laughs> something I had at a tapas restaurant. Um, so <laughs> you guys were both uh, down at the Supreme Court. Uh, this week, set the scene for me. What was going on? You were outside. Tell me what was. Uh, tell me what the scene was like outside. It was really exciting outside. I think it helped that it was an absolutely beautiful day. Low humidity, sunny, a light breeze, warm. It, it actually could not have been a nicer day. So that brought everyone out. Pretty much gay marriage weather. Really. It, it made it made all the colors brighter. The rainbow flags were sparkling, and there were a lot more rainbow flags than the anti-marriage equality signs. Westboro Baptist Church was there. They were outnumbered, and they left pretty quickly around 10 a.m. because they had to go to the Pentagon because they had to protest there. Right. So of uh, everybody I mean, knows that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it was still oral arguments. The decision isn't coming in. Until June, but in many ways it felt like a celebration already because the public opinion, I think, is on you know is already on the side of marriage equality, and people just felt like you know this was the time they felt confident, and so people were ha- were having a lot of fun. But this, of course, is not yet at the stage where it's a fait accompli. Uh, it's pretty close. I think it's close. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a ton of doubt. Like you know, because I think especially. Roberts, uh, Justice Roberts, I think, uh, in the second uh, question really sort of said that, you know, if you, I don't think they're going to get to the second question. The second question being essentially whether states have to uh, recognize uh, marriages performed in other states or right. if they can explicitly ban basically only gay marriages from being recognized um, that are performed in other states, um, which is something that's very uncommon um, for other states to do. I think the last time that uh, Kentucky was that had done it was like 1971. They had not recognized another uh, marriage uh, from a different state. So, you know, it's something that very rarely happens. I don't think we're actually going to get to that question. And I think uh, especially given that Kennedy barely asked any questions during that second question. Kennedy is Anthony Kennedy is generally seen as the sort of swing vote, but the swing is kind of a little bit swung over to the side of marriage equality. Right. And I think that he sort of like, he had some caution in the first argument, but I think it was just him articulating that he was. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply was a little bit concerned about the court moving too quickly. Um, but I don't think that there's a, a ton of doubt. I think it was he was just basically expressing that and saying, you know, there is this worry that you've had this uh, institution around and it has changed um, very rapidly um, when you look at, you know, the long scope of history. Um, but I don't think that that's really going to be something. I think, I mean, it's pretty clear that he's going to figure out a way to bring about marriage equality, I think, here. Uh, how, were the, how were the government's arguments in this case? Well, I mean, well, the, the state really, really. I, I mean, I mean, I think it was probably a non-factor, really. really. I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't think that they, he had much. I mean, I think it was mostly symbolic. Uh, I know that some of the lawyers who have worked on these cases, not necessarily the two who were arguing that day, said that it just felt great to stand shoulder to shoulder with the federal government and to have the federal government on your side after all these years. And I went to a reception for a lot of the marriage equality plaintiffs, not only in this case, but just in cases over the years. I went to that the night before. It was sponsored by Freedom to Marry. And White House Senior Advisor Valerie Jarrett was there. And she said, you know, we're I'm here to toast all these couples who have had to go through so much. We'll be there in the Supreme Court tomorrow. I think she actually was there uh, at the Supreme Court. Um, and who so, paid for those seats? That's my question. <laughs> who did? And so, you know, it just it just shows how far the government has come since, you know, the days of the last Democratic president. Yeah, it's true. It's uh, it's kind of been a sea change. Uh, and and all I, I, I saw some uh, some graph. I, I can't remember who 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 put it up, but it, it was interesting. They talked about the number of times Americans had changed their mind on a big issue like gay marriage, like interracial marriage. And there seems to be a commonality. There's a big tipping point, and then the minds just start changing rapidly. Uh, and gay marriage is like I, – I mean there was a time where I, where I really didn't know if marriage equality would ever be a thing. And now it, it does definitely feel to me like it can't not be a thing. It's an eventuality. So, so I guess my next question then is, is what, what arguments against – marriage equality survive at this late date. I know that there were there was a a, a flurry of, of sort of historical arguments being made the, just the basic not basic we've always done it this way we should keep doing it this way. But what else what else what, what do you walk into a courtroom uh and bring to the table if you if you if you want to prevent marriage equality at this point? I mean a lot of them were tied to bio, uh, to you know biology which I think is going to be a really big, you know, issue um because the fact that you know we let women over the age of 55, and that's something that they was actually discussed, get married, right? So if, uh, and we let, you know, so if that's a situation, it's not directly tied to procreation. So even if you could say, oh, well, maybe, even if this couple is uh, intending, not intending to have children, um, well, maybe they would change it someday, which I think is sort of the argument that, um, uh, that uh, opponents of, uh, of same-sex marriage are sort of making that, you know, that they could have children someday even if they don't intend to. Um, but that's not the case when, you know, you talk about uh, elder couples or just couples who aren't able to have children, um, you know, for some reason. So, yeah, and I think it's just really an outdated sort of 
view of of what marriage is these days. I don't. I mean, especially even even with Roberts. Roberts has uh, some adopted children, so I don't think he took too very kindly to. Oh, that's a really yeah. good point. Yeah, I forgot about that, that is yeah. a good point. Yeah. The um, there was one. There's one argument in particular that I thought was. Uh, kind of hilarious, and it was actually just it was it was it was submitted as part of an amicus brief in this case. Somebody came up with this crazy idea that uh, if you allowed gay marriage to become legal, it would lead to nine hundred thousand abortions, which is so many abortions, you guys. That's like a ton of abortions, and um, I, I the the reasoning behind it was like obviously super specious. It was like a, essentially just sort of like back of the envelope nonsense math. And the thing that I kept thinking about reading this argument that it would lead to all these abortions is that if you're just going to, like, make up some math off the top of your head, think a little bigger, man. Why stop at 900,000 abortions? Like, you should be 1.4 million abortions. But it can't you know, be a million because you it. always have to pick a number that seems a little – an odd number. So it seems like it's more realistic. I guess. It's like – I was <laughs> You like, don't want to be too round of a number. I, 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 a film critic whose name I can't remember wrote wrote once that he was in a, a restaurant in, in Cleveland and and someone came to his table and was like, you want to try our tiramisu? It's the best in Cleveland. And he was like, why don't you just say it's the best in Ohio? <laughs> I'm not going to – it's like I, I can't check. You may as well just say that. Um, so – so we we're of the we're of the mind that this is going to be we think that this is going to come out in favor of the plaintiffs in this case. It seems like I mean either way I mean I think if you ask people on both sides of the aisle they think that this case will determine once and for all whether there's a constitutional right for same sex mar- couples to get married. Either but everyone th- sees this as the case. Um, it I think most people uh, believe the justices are going to go that way, but. I guess the Supreme Court could surprise us. It will be a big surprise if it does not go that way. I think what could be really interesting is what where Roberts falls on this. You know, yeah. I think he knows where this is heading, certainly um, historically. And there are a couple of questions that I thought were really interesting on this. Uh, when they were talking about the issue of whether um, states would have to ex- uh, recognize marriages performed in other states, he was talking about how, you know, we live in a mobile society and that would sort of be a kind of just a temporary thing. It would make it inevitable, right? Because you would essentially just have people going to other states and then you would also run into problems. Well, is that fair to people who can't afford to, you know, go to another state to get married? And, you know, um, I think that that would be, and also you're just losing out money on your economy with all these weddings that you're going elsewhere and out of state and spending money on. Um, but I just, and if you had gay couples who are living there who had their uh, marriages recognized, I think it would just, you know, it, what's, what's the point of not performing uh, the, you know, the weddings at that point. I think I think you're right on Roberts. I mean, Roberts, uh, you always hear about how concerned Roberts is about his legacy and the legacy of the Roberts court. And it does seem like even if you are against it, that the country is heading toward marriage equality, toward LGBT equality. So does he want his court to be remembered as the court that stood in the way of that? And does he, which side of history does he want to be on? And I think you're right that Roberts, maybe obviously more than Thomas and Alito and Scalia, maybe doesn't want to be on that wrong side. And he also brought that up. I think he brought up an interesting question about in terms of just pure sex discrimination, if you if you judge it on that level, right? So if a man can marry, uh, you know, a person that, you know, it, basically it's discrimination if because just simply because the fact that you can't marry, like one person who is male can marry someone, but a person who is, you know, female cannot marry a, a female. So mm-hmm. if there's the same person and you have two people who are wanting right. to marry them who are opposite sex, that's discrimination. That's true. So the LGBT community, uh, 
marriage equality is only really one part of a of a number of civil rights that the LGBT community has, has historically sought. Can this decision, if it goes their way in this case, will, could it have follow-on effects for other civil rights that this community has been trying to attain? Oh, yeah. And that was the whole strategy of Evan Wolfson, who's the founder of Freedom to Marry, back when he was in law school in the 80s, which is a long time ago, long before it's other people It's such a long time to work on cases were, like this. <laughs> we're thinking about this. He was arguing that marriage is essential to broader acceptance of LGBT people. And between now and the decision, uh, Senator Jeff Merkley and Congressman uh, David Ciceline, I don't know, I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly, they are going to be introducing uh, legislation that would be a comprehensive LGBT civil rights bill. And so, you know, the community is already moving on. They're already looking forward at what the next step is. And so that's going to be, that should come out before June, that legislation. So 2016. Is they're going to bail them out. Everyone's got to evolve on this issue now, right? Do they, though? I mean, for the primaries, they can just say, oh, this is already decided. They don't necessarily have to evolve. I think it gives them a bailout. It's like, oh, well, you know, regardless of what I think the court is has already decided this issue, it's kind of pointless at this point. You know, that, I, it's just an easy way for them to sort of duck it if they want to. Fair enough. But why duck it if you if you have that? If you have half a mind to just sort of step up and be, you know, in the present moment with most of the people in the country, why not take it? Well, you have to get through the primary and yeah. not all the Republican primary voters are there quite yet. Oh, that's true enough. That's true enough. I mean, we did see a sort of spate of these candidates being asked if they'd attend a, a gay wedding, right. which, which, like, honestly, is, is like kind of like like your your first step into the waters of, <laughs> of gay things. It's like, would I stand in a room with two people celebrating who are gay? <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I would I would have canapes. You know, someone on Twitter said weddings are already pretty gay to begin with. You're going to a wedding. I mean, right, right. Mine was mine was, you know, I, I, you know, mine was specifically calibrated to to uh, to 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 be, uh, you know, kind of like right down the center of the Kinsey scale. (laughs) You don't think that that any of uh, the discussion, the debates will have anything to do with, you know, oh, amending the Constitution to, you know, ban. Ted Cruz is still there. Ted Cruz is there. Yeah. I mean, so that's going to be something that all they're going to have to. Ted Cruz, though, also it's, meeting this ridiculous, with, crazy thing that's ne- never in a million never years going to happen. happen. Like just insane thing. Ted but, Cruz yeah. also meeting with gay hoteliers. <laughs> um, so I don't although know. although uh, he said he regret not Ted Cruz, but the hoteliers yes, regret regretted it. Meeting with Ted Cruz, I think it's a little short sighted. I think the quickest way to anyone's heart is to. Meet them and get to know them and show that you're worth knowing. I think that a lot of minds and hearts have been changed about the gay community just by people getting to know them. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, oh, well, can't solve every problem, I guess. (laughs) Um, What do you think the care to care to take a guess on how the what the what the uh, what the score is at the end? I mean, it's either five, four, what? I mean, six, three, five, four, six, three. Amanda. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be unanimous. <laughs> right. Yeah. I guess it's. I, I mean, we were talking. Yeah. We were talking about the ancient Greeks at some point. So I definitely don't think we're going to get Alito. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> All right. So so we think Roberts and Kennedy might join the liberals at best and Scalia, Alito, Clarence Thomas. Right. Yeah. Stay where they are. Lost cause. Yeah. All right. Well, that sounds pretty good. Uh, <laughs> definitely take that. Thanks for coming and joining us today. Great. Thank you. Thanks. You can follow Amanda Turkle on Twitter at A Turkle, at, at, at A Turkle, at A T E R K E L. Yep. Did I get all that right? Exactly. 
And you can follow Ryan Riley, and I don't know yours off the top of the head. It's, it's Ryan J. Riley. Ryan J. Riley. Oh, wow, I do know it. So it's at it. Ryan J. Riley. Riley is R-E-I-L-L-Y. You nailed it. Yay. <laughs> it's one thing I'm good at, Twitter handles. <laughs> Okay, so now we're going to talk a little bit of 2016, but specifically we're going to talk a little bit about campaign finance, and we're going to talk a little bit about Hillary Clinton in particular, which is a big swamp to wade into. Joining me to help wade into the swamp is... I'm Paul Blumenthal, the money and politics reporter for the Huffington Post. Yes, welcome, Paul. Paul, we... uh, So I, I remember having a conversation with you maybe months ago, when we were talking about specifically the nature of the Clinton Global Initiative. And it's obviously been a key feature of Bill Clinton's post-presidency. And for those of you who don't know, the Clinton Global Initiative, and I believe now it's called the Clinton, Hillary, and Chelsea Clinton Foundation, although maybe it's not, maybe Hillary's not in the title anymore. It's hard to keep up with. Uh, it was originally conceived as sort of a, 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 a massive charitable works program. Uh, but it was one of those kind of, massive charitable works program that looped in corporate sponsors and affluent thought leaders and people with people with uh, deep rich pockets and connections uh, to ostensibly do some good in the world. And I don't think we I don't think we are objecting to the notion that they've not done some good in the world. But I also thought that this was potentially a powerful tool. <laughs> when you want to run for election? Am I crazy to think that? Well, I, I think that it definitely, you know, provides avenues for corporations or wealthy donors to, you know, they, they have a, a new place where they can give money to that could draw the attention of, a, you know, a potential candidate or, you know, a government official, depending on which office one of the Clintons is occupying at the time. I mean, you know, you, you've seen a lot of presidential candidates or pres- presidents when they exit their administration. They set up foundations. They set up these kind of efforts. And I think, you know, Bill Clinton's was probably the most, uh, the, the sort of largest kind of idea around this. And it sort of fits into the sort of uh, overgrowth of billionaire philanthropy that's sort of grown over the last 10, 20 years as we have seen more and more billionaires. And he sort of fit into that uh mold of of philanthropy and it, it sort of certainly gives away for somebody you know if your wife is a senator or running for president or is the secretary of state you know there are ways that a, now a corporation can give money and say you know i don't know if necessarily a, a company that wants to build the keystone pipeline is giving money to the clinton foundation right, yeah. specifically because that might be know, a bit too on the nose they want to help kids in haiti right. uh, you know they might want to just be getting the attention of them and we've seen this even in congressional races i mean you have people like senator orrin hatch has his own nonprofit called the utah families foundation which is run by his son who is a lobbyist for the pharmaceutical industry and this nonprofit raises almost all of its money from, guess what, the pharmaceutical industry, of which Orrin Hatch is a very big supporter of. Uh, so, you know, this isn't new with the Clintons, but they're certainly – the Clinton Foundation certainly does this or provides a place for corporations and big donors to put their money if they want to get the ear of a political figure. I mean, I think that – I think, like you say, it's very common – 
for for uh, politicians to do this. Even politicians currently sitting in office, even politicians who currently can uh, help a help a brother out when it comes to uh, you know this the kind of charity that might flow to an something run by Orrin Hatch's son. But with Bill Clinton, there comes this massive celebrity, and this is definitely a compared to other other similar organizations this is very steroidal and, and big and it's huge and splashy and it's drawn in it's drawn in celebrities big corporate brands former presidents uh, and so it's out there in very big flamboyant way and what strikes me as kind of odd is that if there was always this Clinton run for pre- Hillary Clinton run for president in the offing it seems to me that there needed to be massive safeguards in place to ensure there was no even potential for quid pro quo hanky panky. And what what I think we're starting to learn is that there just wasn't a lot of attention paid to guarding against those possibilities at all. Even in the sense of just simply having a watchdog saying, well, look, I'm looking at it. I'm paying attention to it. Yeah. I'm, I'm here to like ensure people that there's nothing weird going on here. It just seems like it was just left to chance. I mean, it does seem like there was little oversight, especially, I mean, whether, you know, quid pro quo or not, just even looking at the appearance of, of, you know, whether there could be any kind of self-dealing or corruption or anything along those lines, uh, you know, whether those things get get proven. But, uh, I mean, you'd you'd imagine that they would have wanted to, especially considering this was founded when Hillary Clinton was an elected senator, um, you know, that that's an area where people are trying to influence also. When she was Secretary of State, I mean, when she ran for president the first time and when she's running for president now. I mean, I do kind of find it interesting that all of a sudden we have this flood of stories about how companies were trying to influence her as Secretary of State now that she's running for president. I don't know why these stories weren't out when she was actually Secretary of State. I mean, you know, the Clinton (laughs) Foundation was disclosing a lot of these donations then. So, yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, of course, uh, you know, I think people... It's weird. I think that the the sort of people who are now coming out after these stories in the media, and we'll talk a little bit about what's driving it in just a minute. But I think I feel like uh, these are the type of people that are more keyed into elections and horse race politics and the potential pitfalls than they are about like real potential corruption happening while people are in office at the at the with their hands on the machinery of of of, of government. Uh, so I mean it is it is you know I, I suspect that maybe you're you're putting that out there as sort of like a cynical rhetorical, which I appreciate, you know, but I think I think the bottom line is that like just generally reporters don't pay much attention to what maybe is going on behind the scenes. Go- it's not, governance. Yeah, yeah. Governance. Yeah. Politics they've got, horse race they've got, real governance they don't. And I mean there, there's quid pro quo politics happening all over the fucking place. You know, we never really hear about it except we we talk about sort of the big donors and the lobbyists and the people who are kind of knit up in the favor trading game as, as sort of delightful flora and fauna of the Washington scene and not as people who actually really do exert an undue amount of influence. But so what's dri- a lot of what's, what's driving the current coverage is, of course, this book, uh, Clinton Cash by Peter Schweitzer. Um, and that presents a problem for all of us too, because there's the need to sort of vet the vetter here in this case, because Schweitzer is, you know, somewhat of a Democratic Party antagonist, somewhat of a Clinton antagonist. There's a promise coming that he's going to do the same for Jeb Bush, but I don't 
A, it's not going to be a big book, and B, I, I really don't think it's actually there's actually going to be a, a Jeb Bush version of this. Um, <laughs> I, I, I live to be proven wrong, but that's what I just sort of think. Um, where where does his credibility stand in this, though? Because the New York Times did run a story that seemed pretty pinned down about uh, an, an incident that happened in where 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 uh, a Russian uranium deal uh, seems to have been made at the same time as money was being traded back and forth by key players in that deal with the Clinton Global Initiative, or Clinton Foundation, rather. I mean, I guess that Peter Schweitzer has some amount of credibility, but, you know, based on his previous book, which led to the passage of the Stock Act, which banned insider trading by members of Congress. But, I mean, even that book had serious problems with, uh, you know, saying things like Senator Sheldon Whitehouse was doing insider trading or Senator John Kerry. And a lot of these were just founded to be just completely inaccurate and wrong. I mean, a lot of his stuff is sort of collecting and displaying what seems like the appearance of corruption. Now, the New York Times and other outlets like the International Business Tribune have been sort of going beyond the book and doing actual reporting. I don't think Peter Schweitzer actually does reporting. He's just sort of collecting information and putting it in a book and saying, I'm just asking the question. Exactly. Right. And then it leaves. Uh, and, and, and so this is this is one of the things that was interesting about this book is that it came with these kind of like weird sort of I, I don't understand how this works, but arrangements were made for the New York Times and Fox News. And I think the was it the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal? I think it, yeah, I think maybe the journal. And of course, before that, it was released to Rand Paul and Marco Rubio. Right. And, yeah, exactly. Uh, but the, they were given like and this is weird. I understand it exclusive rights to follow-up stories, I, which didn't make sense to me because it seems to me like as soon as the book comes out, everyone's Everyone, got the yeah. fucking exclusive right to follow up. Um, it's like an exclusive, you know, party that anybody can get into. Right. But it does sort of like set the stage for these three organizations to be taken a little bit more seriously than other news organizations. And I have to say, that's a neat little bit of quid pro quo right there, too. Um, but... Uh, it should also be pointed out that Clinton's uh, campaign has responded to this uh, uh, on Medium, disputing several aspects of uh, the New York Times story about the Russian uranium deal. And Schweitzer himself, in repeated interviews, keeps sort of like coming out and saying that he doesn't really have the poop yet. I guess that's what he's counting on us to do with the sort of uh, tableau of information that he's presented in mosaic form to us. But nevertheless, it does seem like there is something slipshod with the way this this uh, foundation has been set up. Well, I mean, you know, when when you do look at it there, I mean, there are serious issues with looking at how companies are seeking to influence and, you know, whether there's any influence obtained from Bill Clinton. I mean, you have these stories about him going along with uh another like company executive who gave money to the foundation to Kazakhstan and saying positive things about the president of Kazakhstan, who's, you know, like a dictator. Right. Um, and then, you know, this company executive, his company gets, recently get, reelected get, with something like 97% of the vote. Yes. The course, quote unquote vote. A very fair election. Yeah. Super fair. Um, <laughs> uh, and you know, the company gets the, this con- contract from the Kazakhstan go- government. I mean, Things like that are, you know, just look unsavory, whether, of course, they're illegal or not. I don't think that they are. But, you know, like Bill Clinton doesn't operate as the president of the United States anymore. So, you know, laws about bribery certainly don't apply to him. Right. The real scandal is always what's legal. 
as they say. And and I mean, uh, you know, a lot of these companies are lo- were lobbying the Secretary of State's office while Hillary was in office. I mean, again, there's as Peter Schweitzer says, there's really no evidence here of uh, whether anybody broke the law. You know, he doesn't have the poop. But uh, I mean, there are certainly questions to be raised, as we do every day, raise questions about lobbying, big campaign contributions, you know, where are the co- campaign contributions to these giant dark money groups that are funding election ads? You know, like, are they come? We, we don't know about that. Do you think that maybe the Clinton Global Foundation, we're calling up all kinds of fucking names now, and I apologize for that. The Clinton Foundation, uh, as it was originally conceived, was in part originally conceived as a campaign finance vehicle? Or do you think it maybe just simply became that over time? Uh, I mean, I don't really know if you'd call it a campaign finance vehicle. I think that, or I don't really feel like they conceived of it. I feel that way. like I, I feel, feel like donors might conceive of it that way, right? And big corporate brands and big because corporate I, brands. I feel I mean, there's I think a that tremendous they, opportunity for for brands to sort of launder their karma in the marketplace. Well, yeah, it, it yeah it launders their, their karma. They they get to like attach like the Clint, the Clinton brand to right. it, which I don't don't think is doing good in the like world. Campaign finance. It's Buying more some Larian nets, like that kind of he, thing. it's more like a PR grassroots lobbying kind of thing where which you know I, I think that we see this even more and more beyond even the the Clinton Foundation whatever we're calling it uh, in these like gigantic philanthropies that accept corporate donations and then go around the world spending money often pursuing political agendas whether it's the Gates Foundation or any of these other people who signed on to give away their billions of dollars before they die uh, you know Oftentimes, you know, these are pursuing corporate agendas and pretending to be doing good. I want to bring up, move on really briefly to one other campaign finance story. Uh, No doubt you've seen uh, the reports that Jeb Bush's campaign, they've basically come out and said that they plan on turning over the lion's share of both uh, the, the sort of consultant talent, the money and the lion's share of just campaign activities to their super PAC, which means ostensibly they've simply uh, – the, the, the pretense is that the actual guy running for president is now walled off from the people who are running his campaign. Can, can we say now that any, any, any pretense that there's a separation – between a campaign and super PAC because because the one thing that everyone was given a sort of a sop to their need to feel like it wasn't wholly corrupt was that, oh, well, the candidate won't coordinate with the super PAC. Can we now just say that that's all bullshit? Uh, yeah, I think that we can definitely say that that is complete and utter bullshit. Uh, you know, Mitt Romney said, oh, I can't coordinate with my super PAC or else I'll go to the big house. Uh <laughs> Little did we know at the time that his super PAC had been conceived of directly within his campaign apparatus and was only released from that campaign in August. So within the 120 days where consultants were are required to separate their activities between a non-coordinating independent super PAC. So, I mean, this isn't the first time that a super PAC has just been created whole cloth within a campaign. It was done by Mitt Romney. But what Jeb Bush is doing is just taking it to a complete other, other le- new level where he's just, I mean, he's basically not following the law 
at all. Right. And is pretending not to be a candidate, even though he is a candidate, which allows him to basically raise money for the super PAC by saying that, you know, he's actively pursuing the possibility of maybe someday running for president in the future. But even when he does make his announcement and, you know, puts a ring on it with the FEC, the the notion that he's never going to call up the people running the super PAC and say, hey, I want to check in on what you're doing. Let's talk. Like, that's defies cred- credulity. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is that he doesn't even need to call them up. I mean, you know, the, the best description I've heard of these kind of things is or what he's doing is creating a pre-programmed robot. If he ever needs to talk to it, he could just send out a tweet. Right. You know, like, it just has to be public. He could just go on Fox News and get interviewed and easily hint at where he would like them to run ads, where his campaign needs attention. You know, and, you know, we've seen with both the Republican and the Democratic Party, they used hidden Twitter feeds to convey polling and other kind of messaging information uh, or advertising by information to super PACs that support them. So, I mean, yeah, it's complete bullshit that this is that there is any kind of independence going on here in this super PAC world. All right. Well, we're going to have probably more opportunity to talk about this uh, as the election goes on. Thanks for coming. Yep. Thanks for having me. Before I let you go, uh, tell the people what your Twitter Twitter handle is so they can follow you. Oh, it's at Paul Blue. That's not with an E. So at P-A-U-L-B-L-U. That's correct. All right, follow Paul Blue and follow you guys. So that's what happened this week. Just a quick note that we will be on hiatus next week, but please don't fret. We will be back the week after, probably with grandiose tales of all the things that happened at the Huffington Post 10-year anniversary party. But really, we'll probably just talk about the news because I'm sure you're not that interested in the party, though we'll try to make it interesting for you. I'll wear a lampshade or sing a song or something. At any rate, this podcast was produced and edited by Ibrahim Balki with technical direction from Brad Shannon and assistance from Christine Canetta and Adriana Ucero. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by HuffPost reporters Paul Blumenthal, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Ryan Riley, Amanda Turkle, the surviving cast of The Love Boat, the HuffPost Cat, the Boston Pops Orchestra, and New York's own Nick City Dancers. So That Happened is available on iTunes, so please check us out in the iTunes store for the Huffington Post whole family of podcasts. Subscribe and tell your friends. And if there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for your feedback. We miss you already. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.